Lynch and this is Comstay Live. Welcome to the show. We've got a lot to talk about this week as we enter into financial season. Uh, we'll be taking a deep look at Telstra's first half results. Uh, their sales dropped 10%, but miraculously, their share price actually increased on the news. But first, we'll be taking a look at NBN's first half results. Um, I interviewed CEO Stephen Rue earlier this week, and we'll be taking a listen to that later. First up, I wanted to talk about the results with Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. How's it going? Good results for uh, NBN and uh, a milestone for them. Yeah, I, I think um, cause it feels like there's been a few brutal results for like some of the telcos, but um, obviously NBN posted some pretty you know, impressive numbers for its first half. I guess the, the big news that you're alluding to was that it hit a positive uh, EBITDA for the first time of $424 million. So that compares to the kind of first half of FY20, where it was negative $663 million, which is, you know, for a kind of... Um, a normal, a normal company, you'd look at that figure and be like, gosh, what an amazing turnaround. Um, obviously, MBN's a bit different. It's not quite a normal company. But yeah, that, that figure's even taking into account the payments that the company makes to Telstra and Optus for migrating their customers off legacy networks. And obviously, those kind of payments are tapering off at the moment, which has a big impact on earnings. The other, or another big factor is CapEx, which was down 43%. So at the same time, though, like the numbers also come with like really surging uh, residential and business revenue, which were both up by about a quarter. And that's even taking into account the kind of fact that MBN actually, for, you know, some revenue was foregone because of the CVC relief program. So that was reflected in ARPU, which was steady. So I guess, I mean, as, as you'll no doubt hear later on, I guess Stephen Rue will be pretty pleased with the result. Although I, I think like, I think maybe some of the RSPs might be grinding their teeth a little bit because obviously it comes around the same time as um, CVC assistance is actually being withdrawn. Okay, and um, I guess the uh, the big news to come out of the announcement was that NBN Co has revealed more of the locations to receive a Jeep on upgrade. Yeah, so they've released a list of like the second collection of suburbs where they're going to offer that kind of on-demand upgrade of FTTN to FTTP. So between the kind of like two announcements related to this program, that means around 200,000 premises will be among the first that will be up to... Um, request this upgrade. So it, it, it's, according to NBN anyway, it's those areas where I think there'll be both strong demand, but also where it can actually be quite quickly deploy upgrades and also um, it's cost effective to roll out more fiber. So uh, I think the interesting thing is there's still a lot that we don't really know about how this is going to exactly unfold from, particularly from the end user perspective and I guess the RSP perspective in terms of like, you know, how is a customer going to become aware of the fact that they can get an upgrade and, What's the process going to be for like requesting that upgrade, and does who funds the lead-ins? All those kind of like issues that still, I mean, like MBN is, I, I imagine, still sorting through. Really. On that note, thanks for joining us. Cheers. Well, as I mentioned there, this week I did interview the CEO of NBN Co, Stephen Rue. And uh, I started off by noting that uh, NVNCO has now completed its build and its earnings are going into positives. So I asked him, is it going to get easier or harder from here on end? Uh, look, I think, Graeme, a bit of both, really. I mean, we're, we, you know, we've also hit 8 million customers on the network, which were, you know, that's been a 
you know, a, a long target for the organisation, which we're thrilled about. Um, we're pleased with the EBITDA results. I mean, it's a factor of, of course, subscriber costs coming off at the end, co- coming off, could be reducing as we get to the end of the, you know, forced migration period. And it's also a factor, though, of us seeing lots of customers sign up quickly to the network, um, whereby we're, we're able to achieve the, the, um, the revenue targets certainly for the half year and, and I, I believe for the full year that we laid out. And the result of those means we've, we've seen a, you know, you see that positive 424 million EBITDA result and obviously for the full year we're expecting a, a strong positive EBITDA number. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the enormity of the challenge of building out a network across a continent at breakneck pace uh, sometimes gets forgotten. And, you know, I, I often remind our people of the challenges that we have faced and beaten during that period of time to actually deliver a network for a whole, a ubiquitous network, for, you know, across the whole nation. And so that, that, that was an enormous challenge for the, for the organization to achieve. Um, I think, think as well, we, we sit back at pride about the fact, though, that we didn't know when we set our targets of completing a bill by 2020. When we set it in 2014 and 15, we never realized we were building a network so the nation could get through a global pandemic. Um, but the challenges the challenges don't cease as you go forward. I mean, we, we need to ensure that we continue to um, work with with our retail partners to to improve customer experience even further. Um, we need to continue to connect people on the network who are not currently connected. Uh, we need to ensure our network stays secure, resilient, um, and we continue to generate cash flows so that we can invest in the network as we promised the Australian people so that we can deliver even better services to more people over the next, you know, three years or so. And I, I also think, Graham, that the changes we're, we're currently seeing in society will continue to change and we'll continue to see um, more and more need for digital capability for people to run their lives, whether it be personal lives, um, education or, or work lives. And therefore, I think the demands from the community will will grow, and the expectations will grow, and and we need to, you know, we we together with our retail partners need to meet that. Uh, and I also think there are there are um, pieces within the industry that we need to work with our retailers to improve. So we, we, which is why we we've allocated some money for a IT program over multiple years to really um, help. Um, make the um, interfaces between our company and retailers more seamless uh, so that the experience for for customers is so much better. So I I think, you know, the bill challenges were enormous. And then, you know, I talked about bill, but obviously connecting. When we were connecting 40,000 a week at a point in time, I mean, that's extraordinary. That's more than the size of many regional towns a week. Mm. Um, But now the challenges turn to how do we operate a great business um, 
uh, on behalf of consumers and then how do we continue to manage our cash flows such that we can continue to invest and that there are new challenges okay well um on that I'll, I'll come back to the what you're doing with retailers just in a minute but just on the um the financials there's been some criticism from the federal opposition this afternoon that nbn co is actually loading up on too much debt um to, I guess what they're saying is to the detriment of its equity value. Is that a valid take? Do you have a reaction at all to, to their, their claim? Look, Graham, I, I, um, I don't really um, like responding. Um, uh, around, I, I don't want to get involved in the world of politics. That's not my job at all, shape or form. So rather than respond to that directly, what I would say is is that we, we have... Um, we laid out a plan uh, as part of our corporate plan that basically said that we would go to the market to raise funds to both repay the government debt and to fund the ongoing operations of our business and to upgrade the, uh, sorry, to invest in further $4.5 billion in our network. And we're continuing to um, execute upon that plan. I'm very pleased to see that the, we were able to, uh, um, a real credit to Philip, that we were able to raise, uh, have access to $10 billion funding in 12 months, which is a very significant achievement. Uh, and you can see that our cost of borrowing, therefore, has reduced from 3.96% to 3.17%. And, and that's good because that enables us to have more cash, again, to invest into uh, our business, essentially. And so we're really setting upon the plan that we laid out. We're executing upon the plan that we laid out a few months ago in our corporate plan, um, which is to operate a, a great business on behalf of consumers and to continue to invest on behalf of, of the Australian public. Okay. Um, now, also today, you announced in terms of the gigabit upgrade um, side that you've embarked on the second tranche of 100,000 FTT yeah. homes. Um, and you've, you've, you've talked about that at quite some length, but, uh, but there's also an upgrade taking place on the HFC and the FTTC uh, footprints as well. Can you take me through what's been done there and the progress um, to date with it? Yeah. Well, the main progress has been, and our focus in this half frame has been on the HFC and on the um, FTTN piece. Um, so we, we have, in FTTN, we've gone through a process of, of, of quickly selecting the first 200,000 premises so that we can get um, get moving on the program but also get, get our delivery partners to start engaging in economic activity in, in uh, many parts of Australia. Um, so we have selected 200,000 premises based on a series of criteria which actually we put out in our media release. So wh- where we see demand for high speeds, where we can deploy quickly, um, where it's cost effective, and and also we've made sure that we have uh, basically a designing and then building out in um, most states and across urban and regional centres, and that, that's a deliberate choice. Um, that helps with economic activity and also helps spread the work for our delivery partners. Uh, so those 200,000 premises are in design, and some of them are actually out of design and are starting a, a, a couple of areas of now actually starting to do the build. So, so the momentum in the program clearly has started, and you can you can expect that to accelerate. 
Um, in terms of HFC, we've done – this is more um, technical work in, in many ways, but we're engineering work. But we have ensured now that we have basically one in two homes in HFC have the ability to um, order the highest speed here that we have. Um, and, you know, you, you can expect in coming months that that will continue. Then that one and two will continue to grow Um uh, in terms of of, of, of FTTC, I mean that that's a program that that we're still um, uh, still working through, but but we've prioritised FTTN and HFC in this particular half year. Sixty five uh, RSPs have now signed the wholesale broadband agreement, uh, which yeah. is obviously pretty good progress. Um, but you also said that you're, you're going to be quick or uh, imminently embarking on a, another wholesale pricing review. So yeah. so I'm, I'm wondering. What are you looking to achieve from that? What questions are being asked? Where would you like to tweak things? No, well, well what we what we promised the industry was that we would we would provide two year certainty in terms of bundles. So we we therefore every year need to go back and have consultation with the industry. Um, uh, but more more broadly, I think it's healthy for us to have ongoing discussions. With retailers around around um, around pricing, um, but also um, potentially around products. Um, so really, it's a it's a it's a healthy exercise for us to have regular consultations with our partners in, in terms of you know pricing roadmaps. Now we will have a lot more to say about that once the, the paper's nearly complete. Once it is, we release it to the retailers, and then I'm very happy, Graham, to have conversations around more specific details once the retailers have it in their hands. Okay. We'll, obviously, we'll obviously send you the paper as well. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Now, um, finally, I wanted to ask about the, again, impressive growth in business revenues. Yeah. And, of course, that's been accompanied over the, the past half year and, and longer with a fibre deployment uh, and, of course, the, yeah. um, the partial removal of zoning as well. So there's sort of yeah. a, t- a twin boost <laughs> there, if you like. Um do you feel that you've got the proposition right there for business right now, or what more do you think might have to be done there to, to help promote uptake? I, I, I think we need to continue to look at our products, Graham. I think that there is clearly a, I, I think um, there is clearly a growing realization, particularly in small and medium business, of the need for greater digital capability in their business. Um, the ability to obviously market their products more broadly throughout Australia and internationally, but also the ability to um, uh, uh, be able to download and upload documents, for example, um, but also the ability to use the cloud services more within their business to be more productive. And I think that's a growing, a growing trend that uh, we are really, really seeing, and and in, in regional in regional Australia, there's been real excitement about our enterprise Ethernet product because that at the where it's available at the prices that you can get in in CBDs of major cities, because the because of this growing understanding of the need for digital capability to drive to drive businesses forward in both the revenue line and the productivity line. Um, so th- we are seeing strong demand, obviously, for T- what we call TC4 services and for higher speeds on TC4 services, but also 
um, been really pleased with the uh, introduction of enterprise Ethernet and the early signs of the business fiber zones are very positive um, for both us and our retailers, actually. Um, but but I do think that as, as the needs of businesses evolve, we need to continue to think about the product set that we have uh, and ensure that we're, we continue to meet the needs of that business community. Okay. I have nothing specific in mind at the moment, but I'm just making a general statement that I think that this is an, an evol- ever-evolving area. We just need to make sure that we're, our services and, in, in return, our retailer services are, are what is needed in the industry. Well, thank, thank you um, no, for making the time to speak with Comms Day today. It's very much appreciated, as always. No problem, mate. Well, Telstra also had first half results this week, and not on the surface, they weren't too flash. A ten percent drop in revenues for the half, which isn't something that happens too often. Um, but astonishingly, their share price emerged unscathed. So, to give us the lowdown on why that might be the case and all the nitty gritty on the numbers, here's Simon Ducks, chief editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Yeah, uh, one could be slightly bemused by uh, the uh, net result of uh, how the market took uh, Telstra because they were down across the board. But it was quite interesting because uh, CEO Andy Penn was uh, very, very keen to emphasise that he felt that the company was at a turning point, particularly around underlying EBITDA. Uh, and he actually took the unusual step of uh, giving explicit a bit to second half year guidance of 3.3 billion to 3.6 billion. And this essentially helped steady uh, market nerves on what was otherwise a uh, pretty tough performance in all of the uh, sections uh, right across our Telstra's business. So, for example, if you look at uh, what happened on mobile, despite some pretty good number of net ads, uh, ARPUs were down, uh, essentially. Uh, probably, I think it was, uh, they declined around 8.6%. And uh, the income on mobile income was down $645 million. So it was, you know, quite a big hit because that was one that uh, Telstra is really putting a lot of store by. But uh, CFO Vicky Brady was keen to emphasize that they're actually starting to see a bit of a shift. Uh, Tel- Telstra, as you remember, Uh, increased all of their bundles uh, across the board and they've done an interesting thing of making that you can only get 5G on their top three bundles and so what they're actually seeing is that a lot of people and uh, they mentioned uh, in the briefing that they had about a million uh, 5G connected devices on the network now a lot of people as they're uh, renewing their contracts are actually upgrading to the minimum uh, level, which is $65. And of course, that, as far as Telstra is concerned, is going to see a little bit more stabilization around what's going to happen on the ARPU side and uh, potentially leading to uh, some growth going forward. And uh, on the enterprise side, again, really tough across the board. Um, uh, CEO of the enterprise or group executive of the enterprise uh, division, uh, David Burns, was uh, keen to stress that they've done quite a big reorganization uh, in the unit uh, in the last couple of weeks. And he believes that they should be able to uh, turn the uh, unit around 
by next uh, financial year. And uh, in the meantime, you're going to see them still getting squeezed by uh, companies moving across to SD-WAN, so their MPLS VPN revenue is going down. Uh, and uh, so uh, you're also going to see a lot of legacy uh, business services also uh, continuing uh, to get the squeeze uh, on the enterprise side as well. Okay, now there was also, um, a, a, I guess, a side announcement to the financials, um, an, an interesting move by Telstra to take back control of its retail channel. What's all that about? Yeah, so uh, Telstra has a, uh, a current relationship with Vita Group, and uh, essentially they manage a number of our Telstra stores. Uh, uh, it's around 67 Telstra stores that they own and operate. Uh, they're actually done by Telstra. There's 166 operated by independent licensees and 104 uh, managed by Vita Group. And I think this is part of Telstra's push to actually increase its uh, mobile uh, uh, ARPUs and also their margins, essentially, driving into ARPUs. They're bringing it in-house, essentially. Now, of course, uh, this was a bit of a surprise to the market, and net result, uh, uh, Vita Group shares actually went into a bit of a tailspin, uh, essentially, uh, to the point where uh, management there actually uh, pointed out to the market that they have a uh, deal up until 2025 with Telstra and uh, they are diversifying away from uh, telecoms. Now uh, Vicky Brady was also keen to point out that uh, there could be some cash implications uh, going forward uh, as uh, they bring these uh, things in-house but uh, on the back of that uh, no numbers were given at this stage. Yeah, I just wanted to make an interesting note on that. Um, David Richards, who's the publisher of uh, Channel News and Smart House magazines, probably probably the sort of ranking expert on on these sorts of things. Um, he, he, his uh, observation, uh, I have no um, ability to discern whether this is correct or not, is that the move by Telstra to take back control of their own retail store smacks of desperation especially as the big carrier has had several cracks at trying to get consumers to take their store seriously and are struggling to even sell their MBN packages. So I I guess uh, there are question marks over the strategy anyway. One thing I'd add to that, that's an interesting uh, uh, point because you're absolutely right, Uh, bricks and mortar and telcos sometimes is a bit of a struggle, but it does give... Uh, Telstra a particular opportunity if they really want to start pushing their 5G fixed wireless service uh, because uh, you're giving yourself a complete outlet to sell direct to customers. So, you know, I'm sure that is something that they're thinking about uh, as well. Moving on, um, there was another uh, aspect to the Telstra results as well, and that was some announcements around Infraco. Um, Of course, last time we took a look at Infraco, they were separating various bits and pieces into separate companies to, to give them that dreaded word optionality in, in uh, potentially be able to sell or list some of them. And uh, they've made some moves uh, in that regard this week. Yeah, so the key uh, that uh, we heard about uh, during results was uh, the timescale for the potential sell-off of Infraco Towers business. Now, uh, if you imagine uh, it's one of the premier tower um assets in the country you're looking at five and a half thousand towers uh, in the results uh, yesterday 
that particular unit delivered 115 million earnings before interest, tax depreciation, amortization, and I have to say after leases as well, because apparently this is how all tower units around the globe are actually measured against each other. So the key thing that came out of all of that was that Telstra expects to have binding offers for Infraco Towers business to be submitted by the end of this year. And uh, the kickoff process uh, should happen in the first quarter of financial year F22, and it's going to create a lot of interest around uh, all of the infrastructure, telecom investments that are going on. We know Optus are also uh, trying to sell off their tower unit uh, at the moment as well. And we have a few key infrastructure funds out there actually circling around uh, people like the uh, Symphony Consortium uh, with uh, Stillmark and a big Canadian pension fund. Plus, uh, also, uh, we still have Aware Super uh, still looking for telecom assets as well. So it's going to be interesting how that plays out. Now, you asked uh, Tilstra CEO Andy Penn this week about whether he might want to hasten the sale of towers in order to take advantage of the current buoyant market conditions. Let's take a listen. Yeah, no, look, thanks very much um, for the question. I Firstly, no, I'm not concerned about the timing and, and I don't necessarily think we should accelerate it. I think what we have seen, I mean, I think it's been a trend over a decade or so, but you know, in particular, over the last you know, four years, we've seen very, very strong interest in underlying infrastructure assets as interest rates have come down dramatically globally and notwithstanding all of the challenges of, of COVID and the economic consequences of it, the weight of capital that is available that is looking for... Um, secure returns, albeit lower returns than maybe historically, uh, is very, very significant. And infrastructure assets stack up really well in the context of that. And, of course, the reason telco infrastructure assets are so in demand, if you like, is because people know that uh, regardless of the sort of, I guess, the fortunes of the various different competitors in the telco industry, the one thing that's not going to change is the demand for growth in connectivity and the ground for growth in coverage and, uh, and, and mobile connectivity. And so, you know, we've got a, as I said, we've got the largest mobile tower uh, business in the country. It's incredibly strategically important to us. It's, uh, it's very much intric- intricately linked with the success of uh, our mobiles business, which is not only the best in Australia, but one of the best globally uh, as well. And so we need to set this up in a way that we maximise the value of the towers for our shareholders, but we also ensure that we maintain our strategic competitive advantage and differentiation and all the things that we've invested in uh, from the point of view of, of, of Telstra. And I, I, commenting on a, a tech bubble burst or not, I mean, um, I, I wouldn't uh, make a comment on whether there would be one or isn't, on that, that sort of thing. There's people that follow this more closely than I do from the investment point of view to be better informed, but I don't think that's going to change any of the underlying dynamics regarding ultimately the demand for infrastructure assets and their importance um, going forward into the future, if that, if that helps. So our timing is um, we're well progressed. There's a lot of work involved, um, a lot of due diligence and stuff uh, needing to get ready, but we expect to launch the necessary documentation and the process of the actual engaging with potential investors in the third quarter of this year, which isn't very far away. Uh, obviously, and then uh, with binding offers um, in the final quarter.
Finally, uh, it was a big week in the world of fibre networks. Uh, Bevan Slattery, the serial entrepreneur who was on this podcast a few weeks back, announced a new plan for a national intercapital fibre network. It will be called Hyper One, as in hyperscale, and it will connect all the state and territory capital cities, plus a few others, such as Launceston. To my eyes, it seems designed to compete with and potentially supersede the next-gen network owned by Focus, along with some of the backhaul networks operated by the likes of Telstra, Optus and TPG. Bevan has costed this network at $1.5 billion. He reckons it will take around five years to build. But at this stage, it's really more a concept than anything else. Bevan's asking for investors and customers. He specifically is asking state governments to back the idea with cash. I put this one firmly in the watch this space basket for the moment. Uh, Mentioning Focus, they had their own news this week. The Macquarie Infrastructure and Real Assets Fund, which uh, has about $200 billion of assets under management, announced a $3.4 billion bid to acquire 100% of the shares of Focus. Now, we've completed this offer, which uh, represents a 25% premium to what Focus was trading at prior, means that Macquarie could add Focus to its existing holdings in Axicom, the largest independent owner of mobile infrastructure in Australia with around 2,000 towers, and the hyperscale data center company Airtrank, which has about 240 uh, megawatts across two data centers in Sydney and about 130 megawatts in Melbourne. Now, as I wrote in Comms Day this week, Focus has the most extensive independent fiber trunk network nationally and arguably in the regions right now, one which goes into some very interesting places such as northwestern Australia. AirTrunk has an impressive data center presence, as Axicom does with towers. In an age of the cloud and 5G, that's a formidable array of assets to combine. There's another reason uh, a Macquarie-owned giant infrastructure telco of this sort would be a strong presence in the market, and that's that's simply because it would be Australian-owned. In an age of concern about supply chains, malicious actors, cybersecurity, critical infrastructure... Local ownership will mean something. Finally, we broke news this week of a new fibre build in Sydney that's about to hit the market. A company called FibreConnects has almost completed an expansive fibre ring network spanning some 32 data centres across the greater Sydney basin. Uh, the CEO, Mark Rafferty, formerly of TPG, says that this uh, dark fibre network has signed massive contracts, quote-unquote, use of the infrastructure and is planning to launch from April this year. The network is unique in that it avoids use of legacy ducts. It's built its own ducts. I had a brief chat with Mark Rafferty this week where he outlined the reach of the network. Um, so pretty much what we've done is we've like all a new duct. Yeah. So it's all the shortest path between any data center and any data center fully diverse in fully diverse duct. Mm. Right, so in your Alexandria space down at Equinix, all of that campus is completely connected yeah. and fully connected all the way out west, out through their Silverwater campus, going to Homebush, to all the data centres in Homebush, so your Fujitsu's, your DXNs, all of that's in a ring mm. and fully diverse rings. So there's about you know, there's about 50 different topologies in a ring topology throughout the whole network. So pick your shortest path, fully diverse, in a brand new duct. Oh, it's, you, no, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's good. It's it's a serious piece of infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then we're all the way out. So from Silverwater, you got redundancies out to Greystones, Fujitsu, 
There's new facilities going around Rose Hill. Um, then we're fully diverse out to Eastern Creek, out through Air Trunk, DRT, DCI. All of them are fully diverse out there. Then there's obviously there's some uh, internationally uh, self-owned data centres out there as well yep. for their own use. Yep. But then fully diverse back up to Macquarie Park, all the centres in Macquarie Park, rings within rings. We've linked in Air Trunk 2 with some fantastic river crossings and some high-capacity services linking them to Macquarie Park. Then Gore Hill, the new um, uh, S3, the new uh, iSeq Centre, ASX, all the interactive, they're all, there's about four rings in Gore Hill. And then we're coming back down, uh, we've, we've had two new river crossings, which are shortening the routes by about 20%. Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.